0: Well, uh, excited to be here. Um, see, I was supposed to come to Arizona last year uh, to give my testimony at one of the uh, outreach events, which it got postponed because of COVID. So, Trevor and I had a plan for me to come back in November, which is awesome because November is a really terrible time to be in Ohio. So, uh, my wife and I were going to make a week of it. It's it was going to be a. Wins. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Once every 25 years, it happens. Anyways. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, so we're all excited about it, and then I get a call from Trevor saying, Hey, Todd, uh, going to throw something at you, a little bait and switch. I mean, going to change the plan a little bit. You're not going to give your testimony. You're going to come to a retreat, and then you're going to speak right after Jerry. So, so that was a little bit of a shock. So I decided I'm going to start this off. I'm actually going to give my testimony anyways. <laughs> Not necessarily out of spite, but I thought it might be a good place to start, maybe uh, make you familiar with, you know, perspective where I come from, but also maybe a launching pad for what we're going to talk about. So, um, <laughs> compared to last one, it's the happiest talk you ever heard in your life. Yeah, yeah, um, I, I'm, I'm kidding. I, I love retreats. I love, uh, I love coming here. Uh, I know God's in control, uh, so I'm not mad at Trevor. Anymore. Um, uh, so, actually, it's interesting. I really appreciate Brad's testimony this morning because 20 years ago, I was Brad. I, I it was my second time coming to a retreat. It was the first time telling anybody, let alone the group like this, um, why I came to believe or how I came to believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. So it was it was like a flashback. It was awesome. So I'm going to tell you a very condensed version of that story. Uh, just to kind of kick us off. So I grew up in a a family of four kids. I was the extreme youngest, the unplanned child. Um, We were a church-going family, although I don't know why, because we sat in the back, and as soon as it was over, we were out the door, and no one seemed to enjoy themselves. I thought it was horribly boring. I I couldn't stand it, and uh, that changed for my mom. So my mom uh, became a born-again Christian when I was about five years old. Uh, Back then in the 70s, uh, There was a stigma attached to that, and the people in our neighborhood thought she had lost her mind. And so she decided to go to a different church, and my dad and my older siblings didn't want to go. And so I was drafted to go with her. Uh, So uh, as a young kid going to this church, it was very different than the church we were at before. Very energetic. Uh, A lot of things. I wouldn't call it boring. I would say frightening. Maybe was a better word to describe it. I learned about heaven and hell and God and Jesus, and um, two main takeaways. One, I did not want to go to hell, didn't seem like a good place to be, uh, and I did not want to be like these people at all. So my goal, uh, my plan, was how can I avoid hell and remain normal? That was the, the plan. So um, they made me memorize verses, and the one that got me was, I thought it was about football, was John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Doesn't say you have to wave your hands in the air and roll around the ground. None of that. Just believe. And in my mind, believe was like, okay, think something's true. I can do that. And then I can do whatever I want. And I got the believe thing, so I'm good. So that was the Folger plan of salvation. And uh, it worked for me for a a while. I got out of college and I started to see there were some holes in the plan. And so... I'd go to a funeral, and I'd be like, what if I'm the guy in the box? Where, where, do, where am I going to go? I, I didn't know. And so one day I heard a guy share a couple of verses that I had actually memorized as a kid, but never understood. The first one was, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I kind of liked that verse. I knew I was a sinner. We're all in the same boat, right? That's cool. Fall short of the glory of God. It's a little negative, but I'm not sure. You know. The next verse was, the wages of sin is death. He explained, that's not just a physical death. It's a spiritual death. A separation from God forever. And that's when it hit me. I realized, after waiting my whole life to find out where I stood with God, I just found out I was screwed. I, I, I was a sinner, and I was destined to be separate from God. Well, he said, The good news is found in the back half of the verse. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because God loved me so much... He sent his son Jesus to live a perfect life, to die a horrific death on a cross, be separated from the Father to pay a debt that I owed, and to give it to me as a gift. He said, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised you from the dead, you will be saved. And I was like, I don't understand that at all, but that's a good deal. So I said a prayer. I said, God, I'm a screw-up. I've done horrible things against you, and I am so sorry. I believe you died on a cross. I believe you... Uh, 're buried, I believe you rose again for me, please come in and take over, and I waited for the angels to sing and the, and the sun to come beaming through, and nothing, nothing. I felt no different, and so I was like, I said it wrong or i didn 't believe it enough, or the whole thing 's a hoax i, d- I don 't know so every so often as time passed, I would just say it again, and then i 'd say it again, and i 'd go to another funeral, and 'd say it again and i 'm thinking one of these times is going to take, and i 'm going to feel different well. One day I'm at work talking to a guy, and the subject of the Bible comes up, which is odd. Uh, and he says he reads the Bible every night. I was like, what? You read the Bible? No one reads the Bible. You keep it in your house in case you get attacked by demons. <laughs> you don't read it. And he said he did, so I thought, well, maybe I should try that. So I started reading the New Testament. And as I was reading it, it was exciting. I was, like, alive. I was, This is amazing. And something happened, I can't tell you exactly when, but I knew... I didn't need to say the prayer anymore. He heard me. He forgave me. And it was like the albatross was lifted off my neck, and I was free, and it was the greatest feeling ever. And about two months after that time frame, I started to check out a church. My family was sick, so I'm like, I'm gonna go do some recon work, figure out where kids, you know, go to church. After the service, a guy walks up to me, and he says, are you a Christian? And for the first time in my life, I could say, yeah, I am. He said, do you want to go deeper? And I said, Yes, I do. He said, Why? I said, Because I have all these people in my life that don't have what I have, and I need to figure out how I'm going to tell them. And he said, See, at at that point in my life, I was motivated to tell people about Jesus. It's the only thing I wanted to do. Fast forward about a year and a half. During this time, I'm meeting with this very same guy every week, doing one on one discipleship, and I'm learning all this crazy stuff prayer and how to study the Bible. And he brings me to a retreat like this called Beulah Beach, which is outside of Cleveland, and um, I learned about the ministry, and it's, this is awesome. I'm like, this is great. One day, he says, Todd, I want you to take next Thursday off. We're going to go follow up with some guys that were at an event. I'm like, okay. So I take the day off, go to pick him up, and I'm like, so what are we What are we doing again? He's like, we're going to go to these guys' offices, and we're going we're to share the gospel with them. And I'm like, wait a minute, what? You've got to be kidding me. Like, these people, do they know we're coming? He's like, well... They checked a box and said they wanted some information, so, you know. And I'm like, how do I get out of this car while it's moving? This is a terrible idea. Kind of counterintuitive, right? When I knew almost nothing about what, except what Jesus did on the cross, and I wanted to tell everybody, when I knew all this other stuff about the Bible, that is the last thing I wanted to do. Yesterday, when Trevor welcomed uh, the men... Uh, he shared a verse, which uh, Winston uh, hit again, which is Proverbs 23.7. So why hitting that verse so hard? It comes up every every year. Because it's a foundational verse. That verse says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. In fact, every bit of your behavioral, every change that's ever made begins with the way you think. It's so important. In fact, one of the main reasons we actually have this retreat and retreats like this is to help you think biblically. And so My goal for tonight is that God would cause you to think about how you think about evangelism. And with that in mind, uh, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, um, we need you. God, um, you offer a hope that is an anchor for our soul, sure and steadfast. God, the hope that is stronger than all the the storms of the world that come crashing against us. God, you are stronger, you are greater, and you are more amazing. And so I pray, God, that you would come and you would teach us all, uh, and that you would help us to understand the things that are of you, and you'd protect all of us from anything that's not of you. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16? That's where we're going to spend most of our time. Now, as you're turning there, I'm going to remind you of another verse. A verse that was talked about... uh, This is a very small podium. It's hard to fit everything on here. I'm going to do my best. Um, Yeah. Uh, Okay. Uh, Which is uh, Acts 17.11, right? But the Bereans were more noble-minded than those of Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness and studied the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. I have one request as you turn in your Bibles there you go, you're a good man, Charlie Brown, thank you, um, that you would do that, that you would um, check what what I'm about to say. Uh, it's your protection and it's my protection. And so what I did is instead of putting an outline in the back of my little section, whatever page it is, I, I don't know what that page is, but whatever page is on, um, I put the verses that I'm hoping to get to. I may not get to all of them, but they're there, so you can go back and check them. And so that's one thing I would ask that you would do. Um, okay, so we're going to we're going um, to do verses 13 to 27, and we're going to do a little bit out of order, though. So we're going to start at verse 21, and we're going uh, to go from there. So let me start. Uh, Matthew sixteen twenty one. From that time, Jesus Christ began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, "'God forbid it, Lord,'' This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Thank you for bringing this up in the last talk, because this is where we're going. So um, you'll note with me in verse 21 that Jesus is sharing the gospel message with Peter. That's literally the gospel right there. And Peter's reaction, rejection. He, he, he wanted nothing to do with the cross. He, he thought that was the, the worst idea ever. That's not how he envisioned that the Messiah was going to save his people, was to go to, through a cross. That That's not what he wanted to do. And so uh, he rebukes Jesus, which is crazy to me. Like, he just rebuked... He, nuts. Okay. So, G, Jesus' response to this rejection is delivered quickly, delivered emphatically, and this message... Is unmistakable. Unmistakable. He says, "Get behind me, Satan, for you are a stumbling block to me." Now, the Greek word for stumbling block is the word "scandalon." It means uh, a trap, a snare, a cause for displeasure, or a stumbling block. Well, that's not good. <laughs> you're walking around with Jesus. He just called you Satan. Now you're a stumbling block. Uh, Jesus has some real choice words about stumbling blocks in Matthew eighteen seven. Feel free to flip over there. It's only like a page over. Um, He says this. He says, Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it's inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. In my version, uh, the NASB, 1995, those phrases end in an exclamation point. Woe to the man through whom the stumbling block comes. Pretty emphatic, right? I'm guessing Jesus now has Peter's undivided attention, right? Right? So the question is, why is Peter getting laid out? Well, the answer is in the back half of that verse. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. What does that mean? So King James uh, says, you savorest not the things of God, but the things of man. Still not tracking with what that means. So Little trick you learn when you're studying the Bible: you look up the Greek, see if that offers some some help. So in this case, I think it did. The Greek word for setting your mind or savoring is phroneo. It means to interest oneself with concern and obedience, to set affection on, to mind, to savor, to think. I'm not that bright, so when I study, I have to look up the English word because I don't know what those words mean either. So I look up the word for savor, and it means to taste. And enjoy completely to have experience with pleasure. See, so the issue for Peter is his thinking. He is focused on man's perspective, man's interests, man's concerns, man's comforts. That's that's what his thinking is is all about. Uh, at this retreat, we've heard things like temporal thinking or thinking according to the flesh. First Corinthians two calls it thinking like a natural man. Proverbs three calls it leaning on your own understanding earlier today, Winston said, you know, approaching God on your own terms. It's all the same thing. It's thinking like a man from man's perspective. That was the issue. That was the problem. Now, earlier this year, uh, we got done with our SIAB study, which uh, is, you know, there's guys who do the SIB study. When we get done, uh, we decided to do a little book club. So we, we, decided, we all agreed we we're going to read Jerry's book, The Discipline of Delusion, which is over on the book table, and I recommend it very highly if you had not read it. Uh, we all read it together, and we got together, and we talked about it. It was really cool. There was a couple things in that, um, in that book, and it's really kind of the premise, where it's, it's not the core, but it's really, it's really important, and, and Jerry even stated it earlier. He states that everything that happens on earth is superintended by a spiritual reality that we cannot see without the scripture and the Holy Spirit. And that is what actual reality is. Again, he emphasized it earlier um, before it got real crazy. Um, Okay, so what we see happening in our life is perceived reality, the temporal. But actual reality is the spiritual. And according to Jerry, it's anchored in the Godhead. And through this, God directs, oversees, and manages the course of human events, both large and small. Furthermore, this spiritual reality is our home for eternity future need a scripture reference for that. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, while we uh, look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. That's what he's talking about. So as I said a minute ago, as a, apart from the Holy Spirit and the word of God, we can only think like a man because we can only see like a man. So 1 Samuel 16.7 says, uh, God does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. All right, keep your little uh, bookmark in Matthew 16. We're going to flip over to Psalm 49. Now, uh, as we flip there, we don't have time to read the entire Psalm. Uh, it's only 20 verses, so I would in- encourage you to read it. But um, I want you to... Uh, I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a quick overview of what the Psalm is about. So this Psalm is a picture of the man who is separate from God. Uh, The Bible teaches there are three main enemies as Christians, right? The first one is Satan. The second is the world, or the culture, as Winston said earlier, uh, which is in the power of Satan, which uh, was made made a good point by Jerry. And the third one, and the most dangerous one, is our 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 flesh, our sinful nature. That's the most dangerous uh, of our enemies. And so this psalm focuses on the thinking of the man who's lost and is in fact trusting in himself to redeem himself. And God's reaction is found in uh, verses 7 to 9. So I'm going to read that for you really quick. It says, No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly and he should cease trying forever. That he should live on eternally. That he should not undergo decay. In other words, you can't save yourself. Give it up, right? <clears throat> the psalm continues to lay out the results of this, this way of thinking and trying to do it all on your your own. And so verse 20, it sums it right up, and it says this. It says, Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. The Hebrew word for understanding is a really interesting word. The word is bene. It means to separate mentally or to distinguish. The idea here is to be able to understand the actual reality, the spiritual reality, in light of the perceived reality The temporal, right? If you can't do that, you're like a beast. You're like an animal. Your destiny is separation from God forever. Now, back to Matthew 16. Prior to Christ, as I said before, you can only think like a man. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, Natural man does not accept the things from the Spirit of God and cannot understand them. But when you come to Christ, something changes. Ephesians 1.13 says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the, tr- the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Jesus says the Holy Spirit is the counselor who will guide you into all truth. You now have the ability to understand the Bible and see the spiritual reality that you couldn't see before. It's amazing. It's a beautiful thing. That's the good news. The bad news is, you can think two ways now. You can think according to the Spirit, and you can think according to yourself, according to your, like a man. So you, you, you kind of bounce back and forth, and that's the situation where believers find themselves. That's where I find myself. I can think two different ways. I'm going to stop there for a second, because everyone looks like they're falling asleep. Maybe it's the food. I don't know. Questions, concerns, anything? Okay. Excellent. That was my plan. No questions. We move on. Okay. So I mentioned earlier that your your yourself is your biggest enemy. A buddy of mine uh, shared a story with me recently about uh, he was a teenager and he wanted to become a lifeguard. So he's in the class and the instructor's telling him he said, "As a lifeguard, your biggest danger is the person that you're trying to save. Often that person fights so mightily to save themselves that they can pull you under the water and you end up drowning." So what you have to do is get around behind him and let him drown a little. And my buddy's like, I'm sorry, you want me to be a lifeguard and you want to let him drown? And he's like, no, no, let him drown a little. (laughs) See, the idea is he has to get to the point where he realizes he cannot save himself. Then he can be rescued. That's what happens with the cross. When you share the cross with a man, they realize there's no way to heaven except through the cross that 's my testimony when I said I was screwed that 's what I was saying. I, I have no other way. I have no other way but through the cross that 's why the cross is so critically important there 's no way to heaven without the cross right So important. Um, I lost my place. so how about that the thing, the thing about it is is this: once you come to Christ, you realize you need the cross that 's great. The problem is the believer in Jesus Christ tends to continue on with their salvation, the sanctification phase. Salvation is broken up into three parts. Justification, that's the moment that you receive the gospel, you believe, and, and you are legally righteous before God. If you die that moment, you're legally righteous, you're justified. From that point on to the time you die is what we call sanctification. You are being made holy. You're being made like Christ. That's sanctification. After you die, when Jesus comes back, a Colossians 4, um, 3, 4 says that uh, when Christ, who is your life, is revealed, you will be revealed with him in glory. Amazing, that's glorification. All three segments of salvation, the were saved, which is justification, the being saved, which is sanctification right now, and the will be saved, glorification, all of them require the cross. There's no way around it. And so the, the, the concept that we can become holy on our own uh, trusting in ourself is is ridiculous it makes it makes no sense at all so we're gonna we're gonna flip back to Matthew 16 um, we're gonna pick up at verse uh, 24 and hopefully gonna make this point okay all right so I don't know if there's a cough or a sneeze but bless you either way uh verse 24 <clears throat> then Jesus said to his disciples if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Okay, a couple very important steps here. The Greek word for deny, it's neomahi. It means to utterly disown, to forget one's self, to have a low sight of one's self and one's interests. It's literally the opposite of phroneo. The opposite of interesting oneself with concern and obedience. Setting your mind on the interests of man. Deny is the opposite of that. That's, that's, what, that's the first step. Deny yourself utterly. The thinking that's focused on my comfort, my concerns, my interests, needs to be lost sight of. It needs to be utterly disowned. And we're to follow Jesus. Well, the Greek word for follow is akulu theo. It means to be in the same way with. Or to conform holy to his example. Jesus was the greatest evangelist of all time. There's a passage that I have in your notes that we don't have time to go to. It's John 4. Jesus is in Samaria at the well. He's talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, and he gives a master class on evangelism. It is amazing, and I commend you to read it. Um, in Luke 19.10, Jesus' mission is laid out. That in John 4, he's actually living out his mission. That's spelled out in Luke 19.10, which says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. To follow Jesus is to do what he does. If that's his mission, and we're to follow him, that means we're to conform wholly to his example, and we're supposed to do the same thing, right? That's the idea here, right? This is what it means to follow Jesus, to share the cross with people. Now, back to Peter, because Peter's the guy who just got laid out. When Jesus calls Peter, says Matthew 4, 19, he walks up to Peter and his brother Andrew, and he says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. That is a promise, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. It's also a definition of what it means to follow him. You follow him, you're going to be a fisher of men. Hank, Hank Miltenberger used to say, you follow, you fish. You ain't fishing, are you following are you really following Christ if you're not fishing for men? That, it's, a, it's a definition of what it means to follow him. Because that's what it means to follow him. The way to Christ's likeness is through the cross. And God has designed our mission to accomplish for, what, for us what we need most. And that is to die to trusting in ourself, in our own thinking. That is evangelism. That's what evangelism does. It causes you to die to trusting in yourself and your own thinking. Every believer is commanded to share the actual gospel, the actual message of the cross. Because when that happens, we die. Let me explain. So, message of the cross is, is offensive, right? Um, Jerry spelled out that it's, it's becoming more serious, right? There's... People find out you're a Christian. There's a lot of consequences that the Bible foretells is going to happen. It's offensive. You're going to tell somebody, hey, listen, you're going to be separate from God. You are separate from God. That, that may not come across uh, very well. It's a risk. You don't know how they're going to respond. You don't know if you're going to lose a relationship or if you're going to lose your job or if you're going to lose a tooth. Guy's just going to smack you. In some parts of the country, and maybe coming soon to a theater near you, you might lose your life. You might lose your freedom. It's a risk. Your only choice is to completely trust Jesus. And when you completely trust Jesus, you die to trusting in yourself. That's how it happens, that's how it works. Paul explains it this way 2 Corinthians 4. If you want to flip over there, you're welcome to. I'm sorry if I'm going a little fast. I get a little fired up. So, 2 Corinthians 4 11 to 14. I'll give you a second to flip over there. I have it printed on my thing, so I don't have to even flip. So, you guys can flip away. Okay. Um, verse 11 says, For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So, death works in us, but life in you. This is the brilliance of the gospel. While you are sharing eternal life with someone, death is working in you, trusting in yourself. Death is working in you. Life is is working in the person to whom you are sharing it. It's amazing. It goes on to say, But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and present us with you. There's so much right there. It's crazy, right? You believe, therefore you speak. But the last verse is the one that I think is the most exciting. You understanding the gospel causes you to be able to share the gospel. It, it's this crazy concept. First uh, 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Those who are being saved... Those who are being saved, that's the believer. That's you. The power of God is for you to change you. As you are sharing the gospel with someone, you're evangelizing yourself. And it's giving you faith. You know, uh, Clint's talk was fantastic on faith. The question is, where do we get faith? Faith comes from God. It's a gift, right? Well, Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard when the word of Christ. You hear the gospel, it gives you faith. When you share the gospel, it explodes your faith so you can continue to trust God and stop trusting in yourself. It is this amazing cycle, and God designed the mission for this very purpose to save you from trusting in yourself so you can be sanctified and prepared for eternity with Him. I'll stop for a second. Any questions on that or concerns or anything? Are you alive? All right, you laughed. I guess that means you're alive. Okay, let me ask you this question. How do you think it happened to Peter who went from denying Christ three times when he's being questioned and beaten and, and then cowering and hiding after Christ is crucified to at the end of his life, giving his life literally away for Christ and being killed for it? What did he do from the time Christ died to the time he died? I suggest to you the answer is evangelism. As he shared the actual gospel with people, he was changed. He stopped trusting in himself. He died to trusting in himself, and he started trusting in God, and he became this bold leader for Christ, so much so that he was willing to give his life for it. That is insanity. That is amazing. That's what the mission is. That is what I think this passage is talking about. Now, maybe some of you are skeptical you know, you've heard this, deny yourself, deny the, pick up a cross and follow me. I, I never knew it was about the gospel. Like, come on, you're just adding that in there to make it fit. No. Um, let me refer you to the other two parallel passages, to this passage, um, Luke 9 and Mark 8. I'd like to flip over to Mark 8 for a second, and we're going to go there. Mark 8, 34 to 38. I'm actually going to flip there this time. 34 to 38. Mark 8, 34 to 38. Let the record show I got my first question. <laughs> and I answered it. I answered it correctly, because it says it right here. Mark eight thirty four to 38. All right, it says this. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples, and he said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Sound familiar? For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Did you catch that? Verse 35, whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. And then in verse 38, Jesus cares that you tell people about him. If you're ashamed of him in this generation, he'll be ashamed of you when he makes his triumphal return. There are consequences. I said earlier that glorification is amazing; the concept's awesome. First Peter says, "Set fix your hope fully on the glory to be revealed when Christ is revealed." It's amazing; it's going to be awesome. But not so much for the guy who's ashamed of him and doesn't want to talk about him. <clears throat> it's it, 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 it's not so good. All right, speaking of consequences, let's get back to Matthew 16, 26 to 27. Stop me if you have questions. Yes? Um, Do you think that them talking about the guy being ashamed is a Christian versus being a non-Christian? So that Jesus will be ashamed of some Christians who enter into eternity? That's exactly what I think it is. That's exactly what I think it is. I think he's talking to Christians. Those who are ashamed of him in this adulterous and sinful generation, he'll be ashamed of them. It's a, it's a sobering thought. It's it, it, it leads to my next point, which is consequences. Let's talk about consequences. Let's, oh, Clint? Uh, number seven? Thanks. Sorry. I'm very slow, so I'm still thinking about what you said four minutes ago. Okay. I apologize. I'm, I'm not that smart. Um, there's a statute of limitations, and we passed that. So once <laughs> we pass the four-minute mark, there's no, no... No going back. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, well, I apologize. You, you said that Um, Peter, you know, from denying Christ to to dying, being martyred for Christ, that the, the primary function there was evangelism. Obviously, we know Acts 2 and Pentecost and being filled with the Spirit. Can you talk a little bit about Peter's role in Pentecost and kind of how that, like what's the Holy Spirit's role in that specifically for Peter with evangelism? So the entire thing is trusting in God. The whole thing is relying on the cross and it's the Holy Spirit working in you. You cannot obey God apart from the Holy Spirit. It's impossible. It cannot be done. The Holy Spirit in you gives you the ability to do it. So my suggestion to you is every sermon he gives is evangelism. Every sermon he's telling the actual gospel. Now, he's doing it, in many cases, to a big crowd as opposed to you know, an individual, but he did it to individuals too. There were plenty of times when he shares the actual gospel directly with that person. Now, um, I'm not trying to to take away from the other part of E-squared, right? Evangelism and edification. Discipleship's part of the deal too, and I kind of wrap them in together, but my talk's about evangelism, and I I think that a lot of guys are like, yeah, I'm cool with meeting with a guy. I'll do that. Discipleship's easy. I, I like that. Easy's maybe a stretch, but they're more apt to do that. It's your knees start knocking when you got to start telling somebody they're, they're, they're going to hell. That's an issue, right? So I, I think that's the one that, of the, of the E squared, that's the part that uh, you have to step out on a limb in a big way, and it's, it's huge. So I'm not sure if I answered your question, but good, because I wasn't going to say anything else. Okay, no, I'm just kidding. Okay, back to Matthew 16. We're going to try and finish up at least this section before the bell rings. So. Uh, Matthew sixteen twenty six and 27. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father and with his holy angels and will repay every man according to his deeds. There will be a reckoning. There will be an accounting based on whether we truly follow Jesus by fishing for men. That is a profound statement. This is the core of what we will be asked, in my opinion. When we stand before Jesus, he's going to ask you, how much did you invest it? It's all over. Paul describes this all over his epistles, but specifically in uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15. Again, in 2 Corinthians 5, 10 and 11, Galatians 6, 7 to 9. I'm not going to go to any of those places. But every single one of them says the same thing. God cares, and you will be held accountable for whether you did what he called you to do. It's huge. It's, it's profound. It's, it's insane. I have it in my notes that I'm supposed to stop and ask for questions, and we just did questions, so I'll give you a very quick... Any questions before we move on? All right, good. All right, good. All right, we're going to go back to the beginning of uh, this passage, which is verse 13, and we'll, we're going to finish it up. Here we go. <clears throat> verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He was asking his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, And upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Lot there. We're not going to go through the whole thing. Question. Could you... Uh, maybe elaborate a little bit on the uh, this phrase where my father in heaven revealed that to you. Yeah. Yeah, Uh, yeah, The the Holy Spirit has not yet been um, set with the disciples yet. So, uh, I would suggest to you, and I don't have any um, license to be right, but I believe that when he says, my Father in heaven, he's saying, God uh, revealed it to you, and I do believe it's by the Spirit. I do think the Spirit showed him the truth. He says, I'll send a counselor who will guide you into all truth. That's truth. That's a spiritual truth that came from God. It came from God the Holy Spirit, in my opinion. Now, God the Holy Spirit was sent from the Father. Uh, Jesus says later that all the truth I speak, I got from God. And the Spirit's going to make it clear to you. Don't ask me where, but it does say that somewhere. <laughs> that I got it from God, the Father, and the Spirit is giving it to you. So I, I don't think that I, again, if you want to come back at me, I, I do think that came from the Spirit, but I think what he's saying is God the Father is the one who's the origination of that truth. I hold I hold that conviction lightly. Um, and one of the reasons I said, please berea in this and, and check it and be sure. But But you make a good point. So I'm not going to cover this whole passage. There's just too much here. But I do want to hit and, and maybe get to where you were you going. Hopefully I will. Verse 16. Simon Peter makes this profound statement, right? You are the Messiah. You are the, the one we've been waiting for. The, the, this is amazing, right? And, and Jesus confirms what we mentioned earlier. This is a spiritual truth that was revealed to him by God. So he's blessed, not because he figured something out, but because he is the recipient of a gift that could only be given to him directly from God. Whether it was God the Father or God the Holy Spirit, I don't know for sure, but it was God, and it came from God. I think that's the point. The point is, it came from God. You didn't figure it out, Peter. Um, It it came from from God. Now, there was a, a little, my thunder was stolen a little bit, talking about Peter, and there's a lot of confusion. I've always been confused about verse 18. I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. A lot of folks, um, I think, are... Con- I've been confused about this passage for a long time, and there's a lot of dispute, I guess, among Christians as to what's the rock, what's, what's he talking about? And Jerry answered and gave you his conviction. I'll give you my conviction. My conviction is I do believe that Peter is not the rock that he's referring to. Yes, it's true. Peter, uh, his name was Simon, and he renames him Peter, Petros, which means a stone. But then he goes and says... On this rock, I will build my church. That word is not petros, stone, it's petra, which is large bedrock, foundation stone. Now, there are a lot of reasons why I don't think Peter's the rock. A couple of them relate directly to what this passage is talking about. Um, a couple verses below where we started, um, Peter's called Satan, so that's kind of crazy. I'll get to you in one second. Let me just make my point, and then I'll, I'll come, back, come back to you. Um, later on, he denies Christ three times. Then he cuts off Malchus's ear. Then, uh, he, I mean, th- this guy is like a train wreck. I mean, he's all over the place, right? Later on in Galatians 2, he drifts back to the Mosaic law, and Paul has to oppose him to his face and say, you're a hypocrite, dude. Cut it out. You're bringing people with you. New covenant, new deal, okay? So um, that's some of the reason why I don't think that Peter is the rock. The, the biggest reason is because I think if you interviewed Peter and said, are you the rock? He'd say no. Now, why do I say that? Because he said so. If you flip over to First Peter 2, 4 to 8, you don't have to flip there, but if you want to, you're welcome to. Um, Peter says this. He says, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For the scripture, it says, he's quoting Isaiah 20, 28, Psalm one to eighteen, and Isaiah 8. He says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. The cornerstone, according to Peter, is Jesus. The church is being built on the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Messiah. And Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, I, like a master builder, uh, are building a foundation that you can't change the foundation. The foundation is Jesus. It's clear as a bell. It's, it's in a different places. So that's why I hold that conviction. Again, I hold it loosely. I encourage you to study it. If it doesn't jive with your thinking, that's why we're here. We're not here to tell you what to think. We're here to uh, help you to get into the scripture and, and, and then um, let God show you what to think. Fred. Fred. Answer the question that I was going to ask. And that's what I felt when Jesus made that prediction with, uh, with Peter, is that the rock was Jesus. It wasn't Peter at all. Well, all right. We're in agreement. That's good. All right, cool. That's not the main thing I was trying to say. That was just a side, little side note that came up as a result of something that was brought up earlier. So here's the main thing. Verse 19. Now, before we get into verse 19, I'm going to confess, I never understood at all a lick of what this meant until I studied this, and I think some stuff jumped out at me. But again, Berean, the daylight's out of this, because I I want you to to check it. Um, It says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It's my conviction that the keys to the kingdom of heaven is the gospel message itself. Note, Jesus says, I will give you the keys. It's not till verse 21 that he actually tells them the gospel, and at that point, he rejects them. So, I don't give you a gift until you receive it. When I, you receive it, now I've given it to you. Now you have it, right? He hadn't given it to him yet. In fact, in verse 20, he says, don't tell anyone that I'm the Christ. Why? Because he hadn't given them the keys yet. The keys to the kingdom of heaven, that's what unshackles people. That's what opens their eyes. That's what gives them faith. That's what causes them to trust in Christ. That's what causes them to be justified. That's what changes everything. That's what I think this verse is talking about. Now, let me just say this. I'm not saying that the keys to the kingdom aren't powerful. They're super-duper powerful. In fact, the gospel... I don't know if... Maybe you don't realize this, but maybe you do. The Bible... Talks about all kinds of things that God created that are like immensely powerful, right? There's a tornado or a hurricane or something that tears down Job's house and kills all his kids, right? Powerful, right? There's the behemoth. I don't even know what that is, but it's big and gnarly and powerful. And the Leviathan, another one. Powerful things. Did you know that there's only one thing in the Bible that's described as the power of God? You know what it is? It's the gospel. I I said it earlier. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. How about uh, Romans 1, 16 and 17? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for the salvation of all who believe, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed, from first to last. Another translation is faith to faith. What is that first to last, faith to faith? It takes faith to believe and be justified. It takes faith in the gospel to believe and be sanctified. It takes faith... In the gospel, to believe and be glorified from first to last. From faith to faith. The power is the gospel. It's amazing. It's insane. Now, well, let me stop for a second and just see if there's any questions on that concept before we go to the next one. Over Thomas. Todd, so on the... um The verse where you said he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone he was the Messiah uh, because he hadn't given them the keys yet. Could you maybe explain that a little bit more? Yeah, so um, what I was trying to say, and the point I was trying to make, is what gives faith, what changes hearts, is the gospel message itself. There is a miracle that happens when you hear the gospel, it changes you. Uh, Jesus says, So is my word that goes forth from my mouth, it will not return into me void but it will accomplish the purpose for which I sent it. That's is Isaiah 55, and it was God, Jesus, he said it, right? So um, the power is in the word, and the word of the cross, that's where the power is. So what I'm saying is that the fact that he's the Messiah, awesome, good good information. The power is in the gospel message. So don't tell anybody this yet. I want you to understand the gospel. So then you go tell the gospel, that's when things happen. That's when thing, lives get turned upside down. That's, that's what I'm suggesting. That makes sense? Okay. Can you clarify real quick? Because gospel can mean a hundred different things to a hundred different people. Uh, can you just spell out why verse 21 lays out the gospel? Yeah. So um, I would suggest to you that the gospel, and there's a reason for this, that the gospel is all over the Bible, not just the New Testament, but all over the Bible. In fact, around the promises and around the commands, almost always the gospel is there. It's gospel, 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 because you need faith to believe the promises, and you need faith to believe the commands are in your best interest. So um, the kind of people I say, What's, where do you find the gospel? So 1 Corinthians 15, right? That, that, that to me is the simplest definition of the gospel, for, I, for what I received, I, um, I'm going to misquote it, so let me just go there really quick. Um, for what I, that which also you, First uh, Corinthians 15, for which also you are, uh, for what I delivered it to you, this is verse 3, for what I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. By the way, he's talking to believers and and they already believe the gospel and he's preaching it to them again, which is making my point. But that to me is the simplest definition of the gospel In verse 21 uh, says, flip over there, he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and be killed and raised up on the third day. That's the gospel message. That's the essence of the gospel. Now, there are so many powerful benefits to the gospel, what it does for you, what it means. It, it's mind-blowing to understand what that means, and that's what the rest of the Bible's about, which is awesome. But that's the gospel message. Does that help? Okay, cool. <clears throat> okay, so let's get to this next, this loosing and binding craziness, because I, I never understood what this was, and, and I'm not sure I completely do either, but I'm going to give it a shot. Verse 19, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven and whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What the heck is that talking about? Um, So I don't want to go all Greek scholar on you, but sometimes um, I have this really cool thing in my Bible that gives you the the verb tense and the Greek verb tenses are really intense. Um, The shall be bound, that verb tense is the perfect passive participle. The perfect tense is a verb tense that means it's something that was completed in the past with continuing results. So I read that and go, wait a minute. So shall be bound sounds like a future thing. But the tense is completed in the past with continuing results. And then I looked in the margin of my Bible and it says another translation could be whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Oh, that makes a little more sense. That's completed in the past and continuing forward. Then I looked under Bible Gateway to see what the NASB 1995, which is the version that I have, says. And that's the same thing. It says, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Well, that's pretty, that's crazy. So the idea here is if you share the gospel with someone and they come to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior, a miracle just happened. And guess what? You didn't do it. It will have been done by your Father in heaven. You didn't do it. God did it, which is right in line with, I will build my church, right? A couple verses earlier. So I've heard this taught a different way. In other words, to say, whatever you decide is going to get bound, God's just going to do whatever you say. Or whatever you decide is going to be loosed, God's like, okay, Todd said that? Okay, I'll do that. No, that's not it at all. I think this is teaching just the opposite. What it's saying is, if you see someone get loosed or bound God did it, not you. Don't get over your skis. Don't get super puffed up and think you're so great. God did the miracle, and you got to be along for the ride, and it's amazing. Not to say that the keys to the kingdom isn't powerful. I already said it's super powerful, but understand how, how the change is happening. It's happening by the message, the message, not the messenger. It's an amazing thing. So uh, questions on that? Does that uh, looks like there's a question back there. in advance that that per- oh sorry uh, Todd I, I, doesn't that assume in advance that God has already done it be even before the decision is made so somewhere in the somewhere in this your brain something happens God knows that it's real and he, he counts it as righteousness as he did with Abraham. So, that's a, that's a, now we're talking about some pretty interesting stuff. So, God is outside of time. So, he's not bound by time at all. So, what you said makes me think of Ephesians. Um, in, in verse uh, 4 of chapter 1, it says, well, let me start in 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. What you're saying is what this just said. Before the foundation of the world, before you were even made, he chose you to be before him in love. Okay, yeah. Hard to get your head around it, but that's what it says. Does that make sense? Fixing your hair is not raising your hand. I love that. That's beautiful. Okay, <laughs> hair looks great, by the way. Just to make that clear. I wish I had some to compare to. I don't. Um, okay, so so here's the thing. This is to me, this is the amazing thing. <clears throat> Jesus says that um, that he's giving the keys to the kingdom to Peter, but. I, I'm here to tell you that's not the only one who gets it. He's giving the keys to the kingdom to you. You get the keys of the kingdom just like Peter. He changed his name to Petros, a stone. Remember in 1 Peter it says, you like living stones are being built into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. You're a stone too. God's giving the keys of the kingdom to you. This is the exciting part. I've completely lost my place, so I'm going to have to do this from memory. Okay, so, so, so here's, the, here's the thought. <clears throat> he gives the keys to the kingdom to every believer. 2 Corinthians 5, 18-19. <clears throat> we haven't got here, which I don't know if I've ever been to a retreat where we haven't got to these, this, these verses, but let me read them to you real quick. 2 Corinthians 5, 18-19. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. I would submit to you the ministry of reconciliation is E-squared. It's evangelism and edification, discipleship. That's, that's the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. What's the word of reconciliation? I would suggest to you, it is the keys to the kingdom. It is the source code that unlocks the shackles that keeps people from seeing the actual reality. It's the gospel. Jesus said it this way. He says, but you will receive power... We know what power is. We just talked about that. When the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Why does he give you the power? So that you will be my witnesses. Every believer gets the keys to the kingdom. That to me is mind-blowing. So the question is, why don't we share the gospel? Why? We have the power. We have the keys. Why don't we do it? I can't speak for you. So I will speak for myself. The answer is the way I think. Setting my mind on my own interests. I, I don't want to speak for anybody else, I think these things. I think I don't have the gift of evangelism. <clears throat> I'm not comfortable talking to people. It's, I'm not good at confronting people. I don't know enough. I'm not sure what to say. I, I can't figure out how to get from a normal conversation over to a spiritual conversation. These are the things that I think about in my head. The day the guy that discipled me asked me to go tell people the gospel in their office, I had these kind of thoughts. These are the thoughts that crossed my mind that day. Super spiritual thoughts. I'm in sales, so if I go into this business office and I share the gospel, what if he calls my boss? I can get fired. Or what if he tells all the other companies in in the business park and they never let me in there, I get thrown out. Now I can't even ever sell on them again. I mean, real deep spiritual loving thoughts I had. That's the kind of that's the way I think. Do you notice how many times as I go through these things, these thoughts, that the 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 pronoun I is used? I could lose my job. I'm not comfortable talking to people. I don't know enough. I I I I I I I I I I it's all this interesting yourself with concern and obedience, setting your mind on the interests of man, your own comfort, your own perspective, your own blah, that is it. That's what Jesus says makes you a stumbling block. And woe to the man through whom the stumbling block comes. Woe to me if I let myself think like that. But, but better still, all those thoughts about me are true. I do suck at evangelism. I am uncomfortable confronting people. I'm not really good at switching the conversation over to spiritual things. That's all true. But guess what? What that does is check all the boxes that are required to make me the perfect person to share the gospel. 1 Corinthians one twenty seven and 28 says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. I am not good at any of those things. But that makes me the perfect person to share the gospel. My resume is golden to be the one that shares the gospel because the power is in the message not the messenger. All those thoughts that talk me out of sharing the gospel are should be what talks me into sharing the gospel. I'm perfect. I'm the perfect guy. This is amazing. Now, there's another thought that I've had before, and um, it was a complete lie before, and that is I'm not really around unbelievers that much, right? Now, I'm in outside sales, so prior to the pandemic, I was in front of people all the time. That was just a Boldface lie. I was around unbelievers all the time. Thing is, is they were going to buy from me, and if I didn't want to mess that up, because if I told them the gospel, they could tell me, to, you know, all this crazy stuff that comes into my mind. But then the pandemic hit, and then everyone had to work from home, and now I do Teams calls, and I do Zoom calls, and I don't really go around anybody anymore. It's, it's, it's crazy. I actually, I'm not even around people that much. Um, and the comfort it's gone to another level, my comfort. Like, I can work in sweatpants and a collared shirt, and nobody knows, and it's awesome. It's amazing. We, we would do our Bible study on Tuesday mornings, Zoom. It was great, man. If I was teaching, it's cool. If I wasn't teaching, i get my push-ups in while someone else is talking. I'm, I'm like, I'm multitasking. It's super awesome. It's amazing. At the end, the pandemic was starting to lighten up, and one of the guys was like, hey, we're going to get back in person. I'm like no, that's a terrible idea. Why? We have people from all over the city. They're not going to drive to meet. This is stupid. This is my thinking. Then we meet in person. And then I watch guys come and get picked off one by one and come to Christ and get discipled. It's, It's like, it is really hard to do evangelism over a screen. It is not easy to do. Relationships make a huge difference. Getting in front of someone makes a huge difference. And so this Bible study... I, 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 I'm around a group of guys that are sharing Christ all the time. It's, it's amazing. It's happening all the time. It's super convicting, but it's also super inspiring. Let me give you another one. So um, I work, uh, my company has sales guys all over the country. And so we only get together a couple times a year. We have a sales kickoff in the beginning of the year and a sales summit in the mid-year. We used to do it in person during COVID. We did it virtually, which I love because I didn't have to go anywhere. It was sweet. So they're like, okay, we're going back in person. And uh, I'm like, no, this is terrible. I'm like complaining to my family. I'm like, this is so stupid. I gotta leave. It sucks. My son goes, hey, Dad, if you were in person with them, do you think maybe you could tell them about Jesus? Oh! I'm like, yeah, that sucks. He's right. That's totally true. And so we're flying to Dallas to the sales summit. I connect in Atlanta. Last flight, I get in there and I get there. There's a 25-year-old kid sitting next to me. He goes, hey, you're my seatmate. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I guess I am. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he sits down, he's like, starts talking, he tells me his whole life story. He's got this girl and he loves her and she's an exchange student and all this great stuff. And I'm like, oh man. Well, if he told me his life story, I might as well tell him mine. So I share my testimony with him. And he says, you know, my dad's a Christian. He's like, I just don't know if I believe. I go, you know, there's this little booklet. And it helps you find out where you stand with God. Would you like to go through it? I'm going to go through it in a little bit if there's time. Uh, and I went through it with him, and, and I shared the gospel with this guy. It was amazing. It was so awesome. And here I was saying, let's not go. It's stupid. I'm a stumbling block. My own thinking gets in the way, and that's the point that I'm making. So um, I'm going to pivot now because I don't know where I'm at with time. I'm completely. <laughs> do, you, do you want to still do the, the role play or no? Okay. All right. So we're going we're gonna to pivot. And what we're going to do is we're gonna, I'm going to talk about how do you do evangelism. <clears throat> evangelism is not about having the gift of evangelism. It's about telling a very simple story. It's not about converting anyone because you can't convert anyone. It's something God has to do. Uh, it's not about debating or arguing or preaching or none of that stuff. It's just about telling a simple story. What I'm about to do is not the best way to do evangelism. The best way is to get around a guy that's doing it and watch him. And do it with them. Uh, Jerry said that you know, the people you hang around, you start to become like that. That's how, That's the best way to learn how to do evangelism. Can't do that here, so we're going we're gonna to do the next best thing, which is a role play. My friend Willie's going to come up give a round of applause for Willie. So I just met Willie, and so this is going to work out really well. So Willie and I are having lunch, and um, a couple things. So... We're going to do a little role play, and I'm going to kind of walk through it. And um, everybody should have one of these little blue books. So if you guys can pass them out so everybody has them. Um, If you've gone through it before, grab it anyways. Go through it again. It's worth it. Um, This book takes two minutes to read cover to cover. That's it. So what you don't do is you don't... I don't know if you've noticed, but I like to add cross-references. I'm a big fan of cross-references. And when I first started sharing the gospel... I would just start adding verses. Oh, what about this verse and this verse and this? Next thing you know, two minutes becomes a half an hour and I lost them. So the only rule, and this is Winston's rule, and it, it really works for me, is just keep reading. Don't preach, don't add, don't, just read what's in this book. That's literally all that you need to do. And if somebody asks you a question, oftentimes they're trying to send, get you off the scent because they don't, they don't really want to go where it's uncomfortable. I'm just going to throw this question out. When they ask a the question, what you do is little matador. Whew, let it go on by. <laughs> that's a great question. I bet you if we get to the end of this, it might probably get answered. If not, we'll, we'll circle back to it. It'll be good. Yeah, that's what you do. Very respectfully and, and do it. So, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, okay, so here, here's how it works. So here we are. Willie, um, thanks for meeting me for lunch. I'm sorry I forgot my wallet. I appreciate you picking up the lunch. That was it's cool my of you. Pleasure. Yeah. Yeah, you know, um, I had a buddy of mine who uh, asked me a couple questions that really got me thinking. And uh, I want I to ask him to you and see what you think because it really, really got me thinking. And the first question was, if you were to walk out of this diner today and you got run over by a Mack truck and you died, where would you go? Would you go to heaven or hell? Um, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure. That's a good answer, yeah. So the next question is, you, you get out... Well, let me just forget the other question. That, that's a really good answer. So... Um, there's a little booklet that is written by a businessman. It takes two minutes to read. There's two goals. First point of this book is to show you where you stand with God. Maybe help you answer that question. You're not sure. And then if you want to have a relationship with God, it shows you how to do that. Would you want to go through that with me? Absolutely. All right. Is this mic on? Hello. Yep. All right. So grab your things and follow along if you don't mind. So we're just going to read through this. Okay. All right. So this is this Steps to Peace with God. So step one, God's purpose, peace, and life. God loves you and wants you to experience peace and a meaningful, purposeful life, abundant and eternal. Let me just notice one thing. I folded it over and I did not hand it to him. Sales trick. Don't give the guy, he goes to the back and looks to see how much it's gonna cost at the end. Don't do that. You just, you hold on to it. You control it, you go one page at a time and you read it to him. Okay. The Bible says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Bible says, I've come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Since God planned for us to have peace and life with true meaning and purpose, why are most people not having this experience? Step two, our problem is separation. It says God created man in his own image to have an abundant life. He did not make us like robots to automatically love and obey him, but he gave us a will and freedom of choice. We chose to disobey God and go our own willful way. The Bible calls this sin, which results in separation from God bible says for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god and the wages of sin is death but the gift of god is eternal life through jesus christ our lord so there's this picture here you see man's on one side and there's this big chasm in between and god's on the other side It says our sin re- results in separation from god does that make sense that makes sense okay all right through the ages individuals have tried to bridge the gap in many ways without success Bible says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. But your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. So now you have this picture, and you see this guy's building with all these good works, religion, philosophy, morality. It says, none of our efforts can bridge this gap. They all fall short, see? There's only one remedy of this problem of the separation from God. Step three, God's remedy is the cross. Jesus Christ provides the only solution to our problem. He died on a cross and rose from the grave, paying for our sins and bridging the gap from God to man. God is on one side, and all the people are on the other side. Jesus Christ himself man is between them to bring them together. The Bible says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Jesus said, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. So now, You have Christ bridging the gap from man to God. God's provided the only solution. We must make a choice. Step four, our response, receive Christ. We must believe in Jesus Christ and receive him as Savior. The Bible says, For it's by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Behold, I, Christ, stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. So the question is, are you here with man where it says sin, guilt, rebellion, separation, and lack of purpose? Or are you on the other side with God that says peace, forgiveness, abundant life, eternal life, and purpose? Which, which side are you on? Um, I think I'm currently right here, but I would love to get there. <laughs> okay. Well, all right. All right. That's, that's awesome. All right. So... So based on what you just said, I think I know the answer to this question. Is there any good reason why you cannot receive Jesus Christ right now? Mm, I can't think of any. Okay, so let me explain how you receive it. So it's very simple. It's four steps. Admit your need that you're a sinner. This is very easy for me. <laughs> yeah, the second is be willing to turn from your sins. Fancy word for that is repent. Just turn away from what you're doing. Third is believe Jesus Christ died for you on the cross and rose from the grave. And the fourth is through prayer, invite Jesus Christ to come in and control your life through the Holy Spirit. That was what it means to receive him as Lord and Savior. So here's the deal. If you got a minute, we can take care of this right now. I mean, if, do you want to just, what, what you can do is you just talk to God and you, it's not about fancy words, but here's, here's a prayer you can pray if you'd like. I can read it. You can say it quietly in your heart or you can read it, whichever you want to do. But if you want to do this now, let's just do it. Who knows if there's a Mack truck coming? Who knows? Let's just, let's do this thing, right? So the question is, do you want me to read it to you and you just kind of say it, or do you want to read it yourself? Uh, You can read it. Okay. Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner and need your forgiveness. I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins. I'm willing to turn from my sins. I now invite Jesus Christ to come into my heart and life as my personal Savior. I'm willing by God's strength to follow and obey Jesus Christ as the Lord of my life. Did you pray that prayer just now with me? I did. That's awesome. This is the most exciting part. The Bible says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. To all who received him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So if you sincerely ask Jesus Christ to come into your life, where is he based on these verses right now? Is is he? He's in you. He's He's in in you. Yeah, that's it. That's amazing. So he's promised you what? Eternal Eternal life. life. Exactly. That's it. Okay. So I'm going to stop there because we're we're short of time. But but basically what we do next is we say, hey, listen, um, I want you to do something. The back of this book says you write down your name and the time you prayed and all the date. And it seems kind of cheesy, but I want you to do it. And here's why. In a couple days, you're, you're going to have these thoughts like, that never really happened. I didn't really do that. I want you to write down and sign it so you can look back at this thing and know that it happened. Then I want you to tell somebody besides me that this happened today. And then, I want to meet with you next week. I want to go through this little thing called discipleship. That's pretty much it. That That's all it is. So great job, Willie. Thank you. So here, here's the deal. So you literally have everything you need. If you can read, that would really help. But you don't have to. You can memorize it all. But if, if you can read, that's all that you need. That's all it is. That's, it's that simple. Um, and so the question is, what are we going to do? So do I have to stop or can I just give three more quick examples? All right, beautiful. I got the go ahead. I want to I highlight three individuals in the Bible who were highly motivated in evangelism. The first one is found in Luke 16, 19 to 31. Not going to go there. So you can write that down. It's a parable of the rich man and Lazarus. I'm going to tell you the background of the story. There's these two guys. There's a rich guy. Doesn't have a name. And this other guy named Lazarus. Lazarus, super poor. Rich man's really rich. They both die. Don't know what happens, but they both die. What happens is, Lazarus is in the bosom of Abraham, in a pretty cool spot, right? Rich man is in the place of the dead, so it's Haiti. It's, it's a place of torment, it says. And so, for some reason, the rich man can look across and see Lazarus with doing just fine with Abraham. And he's like, hey, uh, Abraham, a little help? Uh, can you send Lazarus over here and dip his finger in the water because... I'm on fire. My tongue is, is sucks. This is terrible. And Abraham's like, no, sorry. Here's the deal. You guys had two different deals on Earth, and it's, it's too late. You're you're. He goes, okay. Second question. Can you send Lazarus back to my dad's house because I have five brothers and they don't know what I know? You see, the rich man now sees the spiritual reality that he rejected when he was on Earth, and he's motivated to tell people about it. Unfortunately, it's too late. Abraham says, even if a man were to rise from the dead, a miracle happens. They have everything they need. They have the law and the prophets, the word. They're not going to believe. It's over. Okay, that's the first guy. Second guy is not a guy. It's a girl. It's the woman at the well. It's it's the Samaritan woman. Uh, John 4, that message I was telling you before. So, Jesus is talking to her. He's like, like, can I have some water? He says, well, listen, if you knew who was asking, you'd ask me for living water, and you'd live forever. She's like, wait, what? She's like, yeah, I'm the Messiah. The one you're thinking about, I'm he. And she's like, oh, my gosh. She drops her water pot, which she went there to get, runs back, and she's just screaming to everybody, come meet a man, I told me everything I ever did. This has got to be the Messiah, right? It's got to be the Messiah. It, It says... In verse 39, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of her word. They came to Jesus and many more believed. So she was motivated. She ran and told everybody. And it was effective. People believed because of her word. Amazing, right? Great thing. Final one is Paul. Paul himself understood the gospel is not only for the lost, but also for the saints. When he writes Romans, Romans 1, he writes to the beloved of God in Rome called as saints. He says he's eager to preach the gospel to you who are at Rome. Believers and unbelievers need to hear the gospel. So critical, so important. All right, I'm going to skip to the very end. I've left retreats like this a million times, super fired up about the ministry. We were talking about, in Jerry's talk, um, about just the situation that we find ourselves in, the way the the world is. And I don't know if there's ever a time where this ministry, our mission, is more important than it is right now. There is hope. There is hope. There is something for us to do. We can't control all the stuff that's happening, but we we can do what God called us to do, and God can do amazing things. John 4, 34, Jesus says to them, this is after he tells the woman at the well, and his disciples come back, and they're like, oh, wait a minute, he didn't eat any food, what's going on? He's like, uh, you gotta be hungry, and why's he talking to a woman, and all this stuff? And Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. What is the will he was talking about? The contest suggests Evangelism. He just shared the gospel with the one. Verse 35, right after that he says, There are four months and then the harvest. Be- behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Thank you for your time. <clears throat>